Genesis chapter 11, from verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and his wife and everything he had. Our second reading will be in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, 
He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is God's word. So let's pray together as we begin. Our Father, you have wonderful things you want to speak to us this evening. And uh, we know clearly you want to speak to us about faith and about trusting in your promises and how we need that. Father, please would you again this evening impress your promises deep within us so that we trust you and therefore live for you and don't draw back. We want to be those who trust deeply your promises and therefore are able to be bold and fearless in the service of your name. Would you work that in us by your spirit this evening, we pray? as he brings us the words of the scriptures. Please do that for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen. This evening then, we're largely thinking or starting to think about heroism. Heroism. Now, I don't know how you like your heroes. There's a certain cultural element to that, what sort of heroes you like. Uh, If you were Greek, ancient Greek, you like daring-do heroes. You like heroes who kill Nemean lions and lop the heads off hydras and fight medusas, sort of fearless heroes. If you're English, we like our sort of modest, understated heroes a little bit more. So a hundred years ago, it's about a hundred years ago, just over, Captain Oates was one of four remaining men then who was with Scott in the Antarctic. In a very very English way, um, committed suicide so the others had more food. But do you remember in a very English way, he said, uh, I'm going outside, and maybe sometime. And off he went. Very, very English, that, isn't it? Very, that's a sort of very English heroism, understated, but actually self-sacrificial and fairly magnificent. I don't know how you like your heroes. But I think intrinsic to the nature of heroism is conquering your fear. I think. So some people do very brave things, but they're not heroes, they're just nuts. Um, and uh, you may be one of them. You may sort of just love throwing yourself off cliffs out of planes, and you're not particularly brave, you're just a little bit loose uh, up here. I don't know that, you just may be brave. But uh, I think um, 
You know the film uh, The Hurt Locker? Have you seen The Hurt Locker? Uh, the Catherine Bigelow film that won the Oscar what, four years ago, three years ago. It was an odd film, but essentially about uh, William James, this uh, bomb disposal expert um, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And uh, he's you could say he's very brave because he charges in and tries to dismantle these bombs and you know at some point he's going to die and be blown up. In fact, he's not brave. When you see his character in the film, he's crazy. I mean, he is slightly unhinged. I mean, everyone, no one wants to work with him because they think he's going to get them all blown up. He can't go home and have a relationship with his wife and children because he is a little unhinged. That's, so he charges in to dismantle the bombs. But he's not brave. He's just unbalanced. Technically so. But bravery or heroism is facing up to your fears and going beyond them. Pushing through, overcoming your fears. And in that sense, Abraham is presented in the Bible, in the New Testament, as the man of faith. The hero of faith. More than anyone else. So just in that reading we had um, from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, famous reading, lots of heroes in the passage. Most people get a verse. Moses, he's a big, you know, important character. He gets six. Abraham gets 12. When we're talking about faith, Abraham's the man, according to the New Testament. There's much to learn from him. And yet, already in our reading tonight in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, he says to his wife, let's pretend you're not my wife but my sister because if I'm married to you, they may kill me and that's not good, but I'll let you be my sister, then you can sleep with the Pharaoh. That's pretty unheroic. Uh, so there's a certain ambiguity to Abraham, which makes him quite helpful for people like you and me who are vague in our heroism. Sort of may ebb and flow a little bit in the, uh, the volume of our faith. I think the New Testament presents, us, it presents Abraham to us like that. We're going to spend a couple of months um, uh, really looking at Abraham's life in chapters 12 to 22 of the book of Genesis. Now, we'll fit into the whole, uh, the whole um, uh, uh, theme of the book and indeed the Bible. And yet, when you look at Abraham himself, the narrative really is of a man encountering all sorts of struggles, fears, and just about overcoming them by faith. I mean, he, he bogs it sometimes. But there's progress in his faith. So he's called to go, and he goes tonight. He, he gets caught up in a war. Uh, he gets the hostility of his family. Um, ultimately, when you come to chapter 22, the sort of high point, the pinnacle, he's asked to sacrifice his only son, who's his hope, his future. But Abraham makes progress in his faith. And in that sense, he's presented to us uh, as an example in the New Testament. Now, I'll just c confess something from the beginning. Uh, chapter 17, God renames Abraham. There's a bit of a rebranding exercise. Some of you would love that. Um, <laughs> there's a rebranding exercise. Abraham becomes Abraham. Uh, someone once taught it to me. It's the difference between daddy and big daddy. Um, father of uh, people, father of many peoples. So it's not until chapter 17 he becomes Abraham. I'm just going to get that wrong all the time, so just bear with me. He's Abraham in this, or Avram in this passage, but just forgive me if I call him Abraham, okay? Um, let's dive in. Oh, what other word of background then? If you're here in the autumn, we looked at Genesis, uh, the early chapters of Genesis, and uh, if you're here, you remember, uh, our post-Genesis 3 the world is spiraling down. 
So from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, people move east from Eden. That's always bad uh, in the book of Genesis. If you see anyone moving east in Genesis, that's bad. They're moving away from God. They're moving away from the place of blessing. And there's a movement east from Genesis 3 to 11, and it's a world under curse. So five times, I've scribbled them down on the sheets, uh, the notes, five times God curses the world. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Curse. I curse this people. I curse this place. Very strong. Five times. Because you see in Genesis 3 to 11, a spiral down. It culminates or reaches its nadir in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where mankind tries to reach up and replace God. Mankind essentially tries to invade heaven. Uh, and the, all the languages get spread. So things have got bad. That's Genesis 3 to 11. And here in Genesis 12, you get a fundamental turning point in the Scriptures. There's a sense in which you could say there's two halves to the Bible, not Old and New Testament, but Genesis 1 to 11, and then Genesis 12 to the end of the book of Revelation. The two halves. But it's such a significant turning point because God goes from cursing the world to blessing the world. Now, that's slightly overstating it, of course. But there is a significant shift here, because here in around about 2000 BC, God makes promises to one man, Abraham, that grow to his family, that grow to a nation, that grow out to all nations, all peoples around the world. It starts here, enormously significant chapter, biblically, Genesis chapter 12. Because of that, I want to look at it in two ways. So essentially, we've got two things to say. There's a promise for the world, and then secondly, a promise for Abraham. And so we'll look at the sort of global picture of what's going on in the Bible, and then we'll look at Abraham, uh, the man. So let's look at it in that way. Okay. A promise for the world, and then a promise for Abraham. First then, a promise for the world. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord has said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the, go to the land, I'll show you. I will, well, I'll make all sorts of promises to you. What we get in these verses, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, here is the, I guess you say, the melody that just then recurs throughout the scriptures. God's determination to bless the world as they trust in his promises. And this, does, this plan of God to bless all peoples of the world, it's the melody that runs throughout the scriptures. It drives the plot of the whole Bible forward. You can't get away from this tune. It's a bit like, and you know I'm on rocky ground musically, but it's a bit like... Something like a, a great symphony. So Beethoven's Fifth. You know, nothing about that. That's the one that goes, da-da-da-da. Um, now that theme then just recurs in every movement of the sympathy, uh, sim- oh, here we go, of the, um, of the symphony. Now, Beethoven may lengthen it. He may transpose it to another key. But it's that same theme throughout Every movement is slightly driven by that theme, shaped around that theme. Just when you think, oh, it's gone, it comes back very strongly to you. It drives the whole thing forward. And it's a bit like that with this promise in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I will bless the world. I will bless the world. Look, if you know nothing else about Beethoven's fifth, you don't understand what it, how the theme comes back, you know it's the one that goes, da-da-da-da. You know that. If you know nothing else about the Bible and all the different stories and where does Judges fit in with Joshua and who is Habakkuk and what... It's the story of God's determination to bless the world, ultimately through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. 
God is a missionary God. And that's established here in Genesis chapter 12. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, can uh, refer back to uh, this part of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. He can call it the gospel. So uh, in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul writes, The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So we may not have all the details in Genesis chapter 12, but it's the gospel. It's the message that's going to drive the whole Bible forward. That by faith in the promises of God, you can be blessed and be with him, have a relationship with him and be with him in eternity, for eternity. It's that significant here in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now, um, some will know if you've ever done any sort of Bible overview, it's a very significant passage, chapter 12. And people will tend to summarize what goes on here as the, it's done in different ways, but let's call it the quad blessing. People often point to that. That God promises here that he would give to Abraham a great people, one, in a great land, two, he would bless him with relationship, three, and Abraham would be a blessing to all other nations. So these, the quad promise often called, or something like that. And that's true and a very good summary of what's going on here. But do you see actually in the flow of Genesis, the emphasis is really on the last. So Genesis chapter 3 to 11, five times God says, I curse the world. I curse the world. Here, Genesis 12, just these first three verses, verses 2 and 3, five times God says, I'm going to bless the world. Five times curse. Five times here, blessing. This is a new start. This is a shift. God's determination when he starts again with this man Abraham is to bless the world. So you get the command of verse 1. There's a command, first of all, Abraham, go. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I'll show you. And then, well, there's some promises for Abraham. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. It doesn't come out here very clearly, but literally, that you will be a blessing. Abraham, the whole reason I'm giving nice things to you, blessings to you, is so that you'll be a blessing to the world. That's what I'm all about, blessing the world. goes on, verse 3. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why am I laboring this? Because as God starts again with Abraham... His purpose is a missionary purpose. That's what God is about. God is a missionary God. Jesus Christ is a missionary savior. That is his priority. The Bible is a missionary book determined to see people saved through Jesus Christ, determined to bless people. That is the primary message of the whole scriptures. God is very clear on that when he starts again with Abraham. If you're a Christian, you've just got to be clear on that too. That is our primary purpose, can we put it that way? It's certainly, the, it's certainly the zeal of God that took Jesus from heaven to the cross, to the grave, and rose him again. That's the reason he came, to save people, to bless people through a relationship with him. We don't, we, God is clear on that, his purpose. We need to be clear on that too. Have you heard this story gets retold? It's an old story, retold in several different ways. It's not true, but it's good still, so still bear with me. Have you heard the story of um, Frampton Fire Station? 
You're all looking very blank. Frampton Fire Station, it goes a bit like this. About 200 years ago, Frampton built a fire station, little village, nice village green. It built a fire station. It was the first one in the whole of the county. And they bought a very early fire engine 200 years ago. They were really proud. And there were a dedicated group of a dozen men who served on the fire engine and went out and rescued, saved countless lives with the fire engine. And Frampton was very proud of its men and the fire engine that they'd bought. Time went on. Actually, they were so proud of it that they became, it became a very popular activity. So lots of people got involved in the fire station and the project. So they had to rebuild it. And while they were rebuilding it, they made it just a little bit more comfortable. So rather than just a little canteen, they built a sort of restaurant on the side. And um, there was a bar, actually. So when you'd finished your shift, you could relax in the bar. And it became more popular. It's actually more and more people wanted to be firemen. So after a couple of more years, they decided to make it a private members club. You had to pay to join the fire service and then go out. And the food in the restaurant got better. And the, the service at the bar was very polite and very exclusive. And you could go and get in if you paid for your membership. Now, after a while, some who went weren't so much into the fire rescue. They just liked the culture. And so after a while, some of the private members started complaining The firemen, when they come in, they're a little bit smelly. And the bell, when the alarm bell goes off, it slightly ruins my souffle. And can we just turn off the bell? And can we not have the smelly firemen come in? And so actually, after a while, some of the firemen said, this is nuts. We're a fire service. It's a fire station. That's what we do. And the member said, well, if you really feel that way, go and start a new fire station over there. Because we want peace and quiet here, if that's okay. And what had been a rescue service for the wretched had just become a club for the comfortable. That's a parable. And of course the point of that is don't be a church. Let's not be a church that does that. That loses its zeal to rescue the wretched who desperately need the Savior and Jesus Christ and just become a club for the comfortable. Oh, shh! You said something annoying. Someone said hell. I mean, oh, that's just ruined my coffee. Don't just. God is a missionary God. When He starts over in Genesis chapter twelve, He says, "I'm going to bless the world." It's going to be through you, Abraham. Eventually, it'll be through Jesus Christ, bringing salvation. That's my purpose. We're to be a missionary people. If you're a Christian here tonight, let's not forget that. So there's a promise for the world. In uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Second thing, then, let's look at it from a different angle. Second thing, there's a promise for Abraham. Same verses. Uh, Let's look at it from his perspective. So again, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Uh, You get a command and a promise. So let me read it again. There's a command to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go. Now, that's quite a big command. Leave everything, Abraham. Leave your family, leave your friends, leave familiarity, go. Where am I going? I'm not telling you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Go to the land I will show you. He doesn't tell him where he's going here. Oh, he'll find out later. We know, by the end of chapter 12, Abraham doesn't even know what the land is called he's going to. Go. Leave everything and go. Where? You'll find out. Now, how do you deal with that sort of scenario? So on Tuesday, you're at 
work or study, whatever, and um, a family member or your boss or an important client, someone rings you up and says, go home, sell the house, give notice on your tenancy, squeeze everything you can into a suitcase and go to Heathrow Airport. Why? You're getting on a plane. Where? Not telling you. Would you go? Probably not. I mean, he may just be saying, go and pack your clothes because you're going to Heathrow and you'll probably need to stay there a few days while the chaos is raining. But he's not saying that. He's saying, go. You've got to go on an airplane and go. Would you, you wouldn't do that. You'd ask some questions. Um, where? Uh, why? Why me, not her? She likes going. I like staying. She's a goer. I'm a stayer. Can she, can, can, you'd ask some questions about that, wouldn't you? God says to Abraham, go. It's very striking. Now, the, let me just apply this the two ways, the, the main two ways the Bible does. There's a sort of Old Testament way and a New Testament way. The Old Testament is clear that when God calls Abraham to go, it's actually a call to repentance. So when the book of Joshua looks uh, back on this event uh, and uh, describes it, uh, Joshua can recall, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So you see where we read from uh, the end of chapter 11, Terah, uh, Abraham's dad. So uh, uh, verse 31, Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, his daughter-in-law, dot, dot, dot. Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but they never made it. They didn't get to their destination. They came to Haran and they settled there, and Joshua would say, sinfully so. They're not meant to settle there. They settle there and worship false gods. So when God says to Abraham, go, he isn't just saying, leave your family. He's saying, Abraham, stop worshipping those gods and worship me. It's a radical change of everything is changing for Abraham. But fundamentally, it's a call to repentance. Worship me alone. Now, the call to become a Christian is just that. Stop living for yourself. And therefore, following the God of whatever it may be, family, family will fulfill me, or career, career will fulfill me, or whatever it is. Stop following them, stop living for yourself, and live for me. It's fundamentally a call to repent. Now, there'll be a cost involved in that. Always is. You become a Christian. I don't know what would change for you if you're not a Christian, became a Christian. I have a guess, or I don't know what would have to change in your life, but things will change. Because you're called to a radical shift of lifestyle. Why would you do that? Why did Abraham do that? There's an extraordinary command. It's very demanding. There are wonderful promises. And that's why he does it. So at verses 2 and 3, God says, Abraham, you go, I will. You go, but I will. So follow it through me, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. I, Abraham, you go, but I will. I will be with you. And I'll make it go great. If you trust me, Abraham, I will bless you. You will be rewarded. And I'm God. And you should believe me. Now that changes things. 
go. I'm not so sure about that. I will be with you. I will reward you. That changes things. It's a striking command, but there's a wonderful promise that goes alongside it. So again, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, the command is the same. Stop living for yourself and follow follow Jesus Christ. But the promise is similar too. He will bless you. Oh, not in this life, not necessarily. Some things will get much harder. Some things will go well in this life. But ultimately, when you get to the next land, the better land, the land that Abraham was ultimately looking forward to, oh, it'd be wonderful. Well worth it. Yeah, there's a command, but there's a wonderful promise. So that's the sort of primary sense the Old Testament applies this. It's a fundamental shift of orientation of loyalties to follow the Lord. But when you come to the New Testament, we had it read in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. So here's the general observation to, to Christians. The unremarkable secret of Christian heroism completely unremarkable, is this. If you want to obey God's commands, you need to believe his promises. That's it. But that's change everything. If you obey the promises, sorry, if you trust the promises, obeying him becomes much easier. Much easier. Easier. That's the general observation. You've got to think about it. It's just as obvious, isn't it? So what we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. So Colossians chapter 3, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Slaves, obey your masters. Why? Knowing that he will reward you in heaven. Okay. There's a command, sometimes very hard to do. But there's an obvious uh, promise that goes with it. It's obvious, isn't it? That's just biblically how things work. That's the gem. Let me make one specific comment here as well, which doesn't apply to all, but it would too to some about you know, Abraham going and trusting. Can I say to some, stop building castles in the future and serve God now. God said to Abraham, go. Where? I'm not telling you. Okay, just trust me. Trust me. Some, it seems to me, in conversations, some are obsessed here with building castles in the future. You, you know, okay, if I... If only I get that job, if only I pass this exam, if only we buy that house, if only we can move there, if only that happens, then everything will be okay. But right now, I'm just paralyzed. I can't do any. I can't see anything, I can't make any decisions, I certainly got no time to serve God until then. Which is crazy. It's not just in terms of serving, it can paralyze you here and now. Of course, I'm not saying, I am not saying don't plan. Planning is a sensible thing to do. But some are just, are then, if we can just sort that out. We, you know, once, uh, let's just work through, let's reverse engineer the next 50 years of our lives. Uh, we want to be there, we need to do, uh, if we haven't moved by the next three months, my whole plan has gone out of control and I can't do anything and all life will be, what are you talking about? Trust God today. There's a life to be lived today. There's a God to be served today. Let's get on with it. Stop obsessing about what the future might or might not look like and serve him today. 
I say, it doesn't apply to all, but some. It's a common phenomenon, I think. There's a promise for the world, a promise for Abraham. How does he do? Two little things before we finish. Two little things. Uh, let's see how it works out. So there's the promise for Abraham. Go, Abraham, and I will bless you. How does he do? Well, first of all, verses 4 to 9, by faith Abraham obeyed. So at chapter 12, verse 4, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him. Brilliant. So this is a conversion experience for Abraham. He leaves the, the false pagan gods of Haran and uh, he decides to follow the Lord. He obeys the true and living God. And so for Abraham, life begins at 75. Way. And uh, off he goes. They don't think it's easy. That is not an easy choice. I hope you realize that. To trust God. He's 75. His wife's 65. And we've already been told, chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah was barren. She had no children. That's a redundant sentence. Sarah was barren. Okay, she, she's barren. She had no children. All right, don't rub it in. Why is being rubbed in? Because that's going to be quite important in the story. And also for Abraham to trust, you're going to be the father of a great nation. (laughs) Have you seen me? More to the point, have you seen her? Listen, this is, you know, this is, it's not easy. Not easy to trust God. But Abraham steps out. And the first thing that happens, God makes it a little bit harder. So uh, they, they, Abraham sets out, and uh, verse 7. We, we know where the land is, I don't think Abraham does. But the Lord appeared to Abraham in verse 7 and says, To your offspring I'll give this land. Oh, okay. The only problem is verse 6, the Canaanites are living there. So that, you know, that's, that's a densely populated land. That's, I don't know what it's like. It's like being parachuted into the Gaza Strip and being told, you'll live here and own everything. (laughs) It's quite densely populated here and a lot of people. What are you talking about? God isn't making it easier for Abraham. Abraham, go and I'll bless you. Okay, I'm a bit nervous, Lord, but I'll go. Okay, this is the land you're going to inherit. Great, it's full of tough-looking people. I'm going to have to fight them, aren't I? Ugh, it's not making it easier. Life is like that, I think, sometimes. You can, Lord, I'm holding on to trusting you. I've lost my job. But I trust you, Lord. Oh, now, my wife's really sick. My child's really sick. Lord, you're not making it any easier to trust you. not making it easier for me to trust you right now. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes. But Abraham does. He builds an altar, verse 7. And again in verse 8, so he builds altars, which is Abraham saying, I trust you. I trust you. I trust, I'm building you an altar here because you're the God of this land. I trust you. So at first it goes well. By faith, Abraham obeyed. But second thing, in this slightly odd story, 10 to 20, by fear, Abraham failed. What goes on here? Abraham goes for the, you know, the old trick. Says to his wife, pretend you're my sister. What is, it's, it's, Of course, the crazy thing, if you know Genesis, is he'll do it again in chapter 20. Oh, and Isaac, his son, will do it again in chapter 28. It's a slightly crazy mistake. They keep on making, now, um, what's going on here? Now, it starts badly. So, verse 10, there was famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, that's a sensible thing to do because Egypt has the Nile. Nile Delta, plush, fertile. So, that's a sensible thing to do, apart from 
God didn't tell you to go to Egypt. God told you to go to Canaan. Why are you going to Egypt? And you read this and think, Aaron, don't do that. That's not what God has told you to do. Don't do that. But he does that. It doesn't start particularly well. Then 11 to 13, you get this, well, you'd have to say a less than chivalrous speech to his wife. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. You know, a bit of charm, a bit of charm. The, uh, the sting is going to come afterwards. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but we'll let you live. So let's say you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. But that's not a great motive, is it? Sarah, um, look, you're 65, but you still turn heads. Cultural di- There's a cultural difference, I, I presume, uh, in those days. <laughs> but to a certain extent. That's not this issue. But anyway, I don't know why I say that. It's not, neither here nor there. The point is, Abraham is scared. He's scared for himself, not for her. Verse 12, they'll kill me. Now we're not told really what's going on here, why Abraham was traveling around Canaan with the Canaanites and he wasn't scared then. He didn't go for the say you're my sister trick then, but he enters Egypt and feels the need to do it. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it might be, it might be that you know, when you move to a new environment, you just get a little bit scared. Your confidence is rocked a little bit. So you've lived in one town for a number of years and you move to London and it's just a little bit harder to trust God or you move from one job to another and it's just you just find it a little bit harder to trust God maybe just that he's moving to a new environment and finds it a bit tougher I don't know it might be that but what happens when they get there well verse 14 he's right you know Sarah was indeed beautiful and turned heads and so eventually Pharaoh hears of her and Pharaoh takes her Verse 15. Now the shock is, to our surprise, Abraham does well. So verse 16 comes up with this self-centered, scaredy-cat plan. I mean, it's pretty poor, isn't it? I tell you what, to save my life, Sarah, why don't you go and sleep with the king? Is that all right? I mean, morally, that's not great. And yet, bizarrely, verse 16, Abraham is treated well. He acquired sheep and cattle, donkeys, servants, camels, all sorts of things. Extraordinary. And yet the Lord still, despite this, steps in to sort out the mess. So verse 17, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And um, Pharaoh kicks him out eventually. Now two things, look, two things as we finish. The first is is this as we summarize. Abraham's fear drives out his faith. That's what takes place here. Abraham's fear of dying It drives out his faith. Now this is crazy. Because he's forgetting God's promise. God himself has said, Abraham, I will bless you. Those who bless you are blessed. Those who curse you are cursed. You will be a great nation. Many will come from you. He can't die yet. He can't because those things haven't happened. And he can't because God has promised to protect him. He has completely forgotten the Lord's promises in hatching his harebrained scheme. Fear of what is in front of him has driven out faith in the Lord above. And that's common. 
fear of what is in front of us can drive out our faith in the Lord above. That's not a rare thing. Happen in large things, small things. So it's a question worth asking. When I am tempted to sin, when I am doing something I know the Lord will be unhappy with, what is it I'm scared of? Because fear drives out faith. So some here will be behaving sexually in a way that is um, contrary to God's will. Why are you doing that? Well, a whole number of reasons, but part of it is you, you're a bit scared you're missing out on something. The world tells you you're missing out. Am I missing out? I better do it then. So you're scared. Or some are behaving immorally in regard to money in some way. Either not giving to the tax man what you should, not giving to God what you should. Why is that? Because you're scared. You fear, I just can't trust God for the future. I can't really trust him to provide. So I just need to carve off more than I'm technically allowed to, just to make sure I'm safe. There's some are here, and you've heard truths about Christianity for a while, but you haven't yet become a Christian. What is it that you fear? Fear your life will change? Yeah, it will, but it'll be for the better. Trust God. Trust in the promises of God. But so often fear of what's in front of us will drive out faith in what's above. By contrast, faith, faith in the Lord above, that can drive out fear in radical ways. Let me just uh, indulge me. Some would have heard this before. It's a familiar story of John Patton. John Patton, 19th century uh, missionary, went to the islands in the South Pacific, now known as Vanuatu. And uh, 19 years before John Patton arrived on the island, uh, the, four, the only other missionaries who'd gone there had been beaten to death by cannibals and eaten. Um, and uh, so he, he proposed to go. And everyone told him he was nuts, including one of the elders of his church, the Baptist church he was a part of, a man called Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon rebuked John Patton for wanting to go to these islands, saying, Patton, you'll be eaten by cannibals. John replied, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in years. Your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there you'll be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of Jesus' return, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. Oh, you, know, you, know, that. you know, wouldn't you, Mr. Dixon's face, you just hope Mr. Dixon would have gone, oh. But what's happened there? There's a man with enormous faith in the Lord. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. And if you read John Patton's biography, it's extraordinary. He goes, his wife dies within a few weeks. His children die. He's surrounded by the cannibals about to be eaten. And he records in his diary, I knew that I was immortal until the Lord had finished with me. I, look, I can't die until God's finished with me. And so if God's got work for me to do, I'll carry on living. Who cares? Now that is faith. And it just drove out his fear. What's the worst that can happen? Beaten by a cannibal, you get eaten by a worm. Mine will be quicker. It's the worst that can happen. See how faith drives out fear. Heroism, biblically, is overcoming fear. 
And you do so by having faith in the promises of God. Very last comment. The Lord is gracious to Abraham. So he's disobedient, goes to Egypt, shouldn't do, comes up with this crazy scheme, dishonors his wife. I mean, this is Sarah. God is, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. God has said to Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. Who are they going to be with? They're going to be with Sarah. And he puts her at risk. He's a fool. But God is still kind to him. So verse 16, he's wealthy. Verse 20, Pharaoh gets annoyed with him, kicks him out. But still verse 20, they send him on his way with his wife and everything he had. It's extraordinary that Abraham still gets the goods, even though he's been an idiot and his faith has failed because of his fear. But God is like that. God has made promises and he never breaks them. The Lord is gracious to him despite his failure. So when you look at the life of Abraham, in one sense, you trust in the promises in order to obey the, the commands of God. But when you fail, and will fail, our faith will fail. God is gracious. God is gracious. Because although we fail, there's one who didn't, of course. There was one who, when he was faced with famine, for 40 days in the wilderness, didn't say, do you know what, I'll come up with a new scheme in order to feed myself. He just trusted his father. He'll provide. So where we fail to obey, Jesus Christ always obeyed. Where we fail to trust the promises, Jesus Christ always did. So when we fail now, God is still gracious to us because of him. And can I suggest, it is easier for us to trust in the promises of God than it was for Abraham. Because we live this side of the cross. We've seen God fulfill so many of his promises in Jesus Christ. We've seen God so committed to his promise that he'd come down in a man and die for humanity. So trust the promises of God to overcome your fears. What are you scared of that will cause you to doubt the promises of God? They're so good. He is so trustworthy. Trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know our hearts are feeble and weak sometimes, and there are people we fear and scenarios we fear, outcomes we fear, and so we forget the promises you make to us. We ignore them. We disobey the promises you make to us. Father, forgive us that. Thank you that your son never did. So would we look to him, trust to the promises that he makes, that he will keep us, that he is working for our good even in the midst of trials, that he will bless our faithfulness. Keep us trusting the promises you make so that we live lives of obedience to you for the honor of your name. Amen.